Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. When the Dhamma and Vinaya declared by the Tathagata is being taught, he listens well, gives ear, applies his mind to knowledge, rejects what is worthless, takes up what is worthwhile, and is endowed with the patience to conform with the teaching. The wisdom group consists of the first two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, right view and right intention. Wisdom, panya, is also translated as discernment and can be understood in a number of ways as intellectual understanding as intelligence or as insight, the latter as an intuitive knowledge resulting from seeing directly for oneself. The place of wisdom at the beginning of the path highlights the intellectual understanding of the Dhamma, since this is where our pursuit of the path starts. For this reason, the next three talks have to do with foundational wisdom. We can think of wisdom in general as both the beginning and the end of the path as we envision intellectual knowledge gradually replaced by seeing directly as we proceed along the path. Right view. To follow the path is to train in a skill, and there are similarities with acquiring and perfecting the ability to play the ukulele, to make pottery, or to conduct scientific research. Training in each of these fields involves two intertwined components, understanding and practice, pariyati and patipati. Practice is what brings understanding to life, and understanding is a necessary support for practice. In order to make a ceramic object, a potter needs to understand his materials and tools. The variety of clays, how much water to add to the clay, how the clay behaves under pressure, what conditions will cause a pot to crack or explode in the kiln, what happens to clay at different baking temperatures, the various types of properties of glaze, and so on. Likewise, right view in Buddhism provides the orientation, the instructions, the roadmap on the basis of which practice can proceed. In order to fashion a life in the Dhamma, we must also understand the body, the mind, the nature of the world we are embedded in, how thoughts are triggered, how actions are triggered, how our habit patterns evolve. In fact, right view is a very practical, nuts-and-bolts understanding about things that we can then put to use in our practice. Broadly speaking, right view is the correct understanding of the Dhamma in its full scope through hearing and reading, 
and contemplation and checking it out for ourselves. Narrowly speaking, right view concerns that part of the Dhamma that is most foundational and not specific to any one of the other seven factors of the path. Its teachings are almost entirely psychological. It provides a map of the operational mind, specifically of our experiential landscape, in enough detail that we can discover firsthand how we entangle ourselves in suffering and how we can disentangle ourselves. The Buddha provides an astonishingly principled, coherent, and downright clever model of mind, together with an integrated method for transforming the mind. It's grounded in direct, subjective experience of events and their causal relations and a method for steering these causal relations to produce more felicitous outcomes. The Experiential World From the beginning, it's important to recognize the strongly subjective orientation of the early Dhamma, particularly with regard to mind. The field of inquiry is almost completely restricted to events as they occur in direct experience, with virtually no interest in mechanisms that might underlie experience or persist or play out beyond the reach of our immediate experience. In fact, the world, loka, itself is understood not as something out there, but precisely as the world of experience. In this fathom-long living body, along with its perceptions and thoughts, lies the world, the arising of the world, and the cessation of the world. The experiential world is fundamentally a stream of mental events called phenomena. Urges, feeling, perceptions, ideas, plans, attentions, imaginings, and so on. We can also call it the subjective or inner world. No phenomenon, even consciousness itself, is observably a fixed thing, but arises in an instant and ceases in the next. We often contrast the inner world with an outer world, which we assume to be there even if no one is experiencing it. We say that introverted people live in their inner world as if living in the outer world is the norm. However, we have to be careful about this distinction. We think we have immediate access to the outer world, that we need do nothing to experience it except to show up. There it is, our plush armchair, the cat in our lap, the pipe in our mouth, a cup of tea, a snifter of cognac, and a dog-eared copy of Buddhist life, Buddhist path on our end table. However, the outer world as experience cannot be the same as the outer world as it might exist independently of experience. As experienced, it is entirely fabricated by the mind, a kind of imagining that we experience as really, really true, but at best replicates the independent outer world with some difficult-to-determine degree of accuracy. An aid in appreciating the difference between the two is to realize that the brain, the presumed 
site of mental processing sits in the skull in total darkness and total silence, communicating with the independent outer world through neural impulses originating in the retina, in the eardrum, etc. This raw data must be highly interpreted to reproduce the complex model of the outer world that we work with. We have no direct access to what is going on in any independent outer world. When we fail to be mindful of this, we fall into the outer world. That is, we take it seriously as independent of mind, and thereby we become enamored in it. In any case, for the Buddha, the human problem is in here, in the inner world. It's in here that we suffer, that we practice, and that we awaken. For this reason, we as Buddhist practitioners cultivate a subjective perspective, even with regard to the outer world as experienced. For much of the human problem comes from how we inaccurately fabricate that outer world before we take it seriously. The Buddhist practitioner is likely, in fact, to find the move to a subjective perspective very satisfying, even if unconventional from a Western standpoint, since it's based on what we can verify for ourselves empirically, particularly in quiet meditative states in our own experience. It is very nuts and bolts and avoids intellectual abstractions. The five aggregates, kanda or skanda, provide a scheme to divide up the world of experience with reference to general types of cognitive experience. The practice of categorizing in this way tends to enforce the subjective perspective. The world kanda in Pali refers simply to a mass heap or pile, that is, an unstructured grouping. The word aggregate is a little fancy for this, but is the standard translation. The five aggregates are differentiated in terms of ascending conceptual complexity as follows. A form is an appearance mediated by the eye, the ears, the nose, etc., manifesting, for instance, as shapes and colors. A feeling, na is an affective assessment of an experience as pleasant unpleasant or neutral. Note that the multidimensional gamut of complex human emotions, which we also call feelings in English, fall primarily under formations, which we'll come to in a moment. A perception is a conceptualized feature of an object, such as color, texture, shape, or other categories, something recognized as familiar and generally given a name. The fourth formation is a conditioned composite of phenomena. It has a volitional quality and so includes karmic activities, but is also commonly used with reference to whole objects composed of parts as they appear in experience as well as action plans. Consciousness is cognitively the most abstract type, 
within the complexity of experience. Consciousness has the ability to refer to something outside of itself or conscious of something, as well as to focus on or give attention to something. It's highly imaginative and productive of new experience. The aggregates thus break experience into five degrees of ascending cognitive complexity. Keeping the aggregates in mind, we categorize each phenomenon as it arises, even as we experience the outer world. In this way, we see nothing as independent of mind and are unlikely to fall into the outer world. In the primary application of the aggregates, the Buddha does something extremely clever. He intersects two contrary categories, the aggregates and our attachments to form the aggregates of attachment. Now, attachments are primarily the things that we cling to in the outer world, including ourselves particularly when we fall into that world, while aggregates keep us from falling into that world. The result is that we see, as in shoddy merchandise, the cognitive seams left from the fabrication of our most cherished attachments. We're furthermore asked to consider, as if to drive this point home, this This is not me, this is not mine, this is not of me, I am not of this. A pattern repeated in many discourses. An additional way the Buddha proposes for arraying our experiential world is through the sixfold sphere, also known as the sense spheres, much to the same effect. The folds here are the senses through which our world of experience presents itself, this time differentiated by sense in addition to cognitive function. Our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, and our body. Without the senses, there could be no experience. But wait, even if the five senses were cut off, we would still experience thoughts and emotions, wouldn't we? Yes, that is why In Buddhism, rather than five senses, we have six. We have the five that we are already familiar with, eye, ear, tongue, nose, and body. But in addition, we have as the sixth, the mind sense, through which we experience our inner thoughts and mental processes, for instance, in times of introspection or daydreaming. Happiness, lust, products of reasoning and dreams thereby fit snugly into our world of experience. Many suttas variously list a number of factors that belong in each of the six sense spheres. For instance, in the eye sphere we have eye form, eye consciousness, eye contact, and whatever arises with eye contact as a condition. Extending this to the other senses, we find the world arrayed as follows. Eye, form, eye consciousness, eye contact, feeling, craving, and so on. Ear, sound, ear consciousness, ear contact, feeling, craving, and so on. Nose, odor, 
nose consciousness, nose contact, feeling, craving, and so on. Once contact occurs, a series of factors dependent on contact arise in relation to the object imputed to exist out there, feeling about it, craving it, thinking about it, and so on. Various suttas refer to the six sense spheres as the all, in the sense that they exhaust the world, that is, the realm of experience. The all sutta states with reference to the six spheres, If anyone bhikkhus should speak thus, having rejected this all, I shall make known another all, that would be a mere empty boast on his part. That would be not within his domain. Conceptualizing the world of experience in terms of the six spheres highlights the senses as the initiators of experience. Modeling the world in terms of a closed system of experiential events comes with a claim that this is adequate to root out the sources of our suffering, to bring them under control. Buddhist practice directed at the end of suffering needs nothing beyond this all. In In the the six, six, the world has has arisen. In In the the six, it holds concourse. In the six, themselves depending. In the six, it has woes. In line with excluding unobservable phenomena from the world, this parsimony is characteristic of the Buddha's Dhamma. He was reluctant to teach anything that was not relevant to practice. In fact, the Buddha was somewhat reluctant to endorse any views at all, for they tend to be intellectually faulty and to become objects of clinging. For this reason, the Buddha has provided teachings pragmatically and sparingly as pointers and guides and largely as ways of undermining pernicious views we might otherwise hold. Dhamma consists of those views that can actually make a beneficial difference in support of practice. Speculative philosophy and views irrelevant to spiritual development are not Dhamma. But even Dhamma should not be clung to once it has outlived its usefulness, that is, once it has produced awakening. The Buddha compares this mistake to building a raft in order to cross a body of water, then once on the other shore, to be so pleased with the raft as to carry it hither and thither on one's back. We'll stop here for today. I hope we have gotten an idea of what the Dhamma is, a conceptual support for practice, and that its range is the world as we experience it. Next week, we explore how suffering comes to characterize that world.